0: morning or afternoon, whatever it is now. Uh, Today we're going to look at a passage in Genesis chapter 12 and then we're going to look at a couple corresponding promises that go along with it. Really the promises repeated over and over in Genesis and we're going to look at the story of Abraham and these promises but to, to be honest with you they all have their roots in a key and maybe forgotten passage in Genesis chapter 3, or maybe it's one that we overlook a lot of times. And so I'm going to read for us uh, the same promise given three different times in Genesis, and then we'll look at this verse I'm talking about in Genesis chapter 3 as we go along. So let me read for us. um, We can open to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll start there, and then I'll read for us a similar promise that God gives in a couple different places. Let's start with Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then later on, let's fast forward a few years to when Abraham is 99 years old, and we get there in Genesis chapter 17, and I'll read this for us. It says, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring, and offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And then briefly, God puts this very succinctly right before he deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, and he may command his children in the household after him to keep the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Let me pray for us and we'll just jump right in. Father, uh, we desperately need you to remove me from this process and allow your word to penetrate our hearts. Pray that you would do that right now. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, For some of you who do not know me, I actually did most of my growing up in Missouri, like southern Missouri. And living in southern Missouri, it's like really like the middle of America. There's not a lot of great vacation destinations real close to you. So we settled for what we have, and we would go up to this place called Lake of the Ozarks. Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may not have. But Lake of the Ozarks was it when I was a kid. Like, that's where it was. It was like outlet malls and lakes. And as a kid, there were these places like had these like just random arcades. And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And so one day we were on vacation. I walk into this arcade and I have like $2 worth of quarters. And I walk in, and I see this beautiful, shiny machine. And it's just going back and forth. It's that machine that you drop a quarter in, and the quarter falls, and it pushes the other quarters towards the edge. And if you get the avalanche effect, you just get tons of quarters. Well, first quarter, drop it in there, like $12 worth of quarters, 48 quarters. And as an eight-year-old kid, that's the most money my parents. Ever trusted me with they didn't even trust me. they gave me two bucks but I had all this money and I was so ecstatic but I realized something now looking back that is legalized gambling for children <laughs> that was nothing more than a slot machine for an eight-year-old Justin Leslie. line so I just one quarter 48 quarters let's just keep dropping them in there well I knew I wasn't gonna win every time And I just kept not winning. And I was like, down to the last quarter, and nothing. I mean, the quarters were right there on the edge. I don't see how they weren't falling off. But I lost everything. And as an eight-year-old who just lost all the money he ever had, I was devastated. I was a heartbroken little boy. And I was just inconsolable. My mom was over here. It's okay. My dad's like, it's all right, buddy. I was just inconsolable. I was mad. I was sad. I was ashamed. I really was. I I don't know that I felt more ashamed in my life than at that moment. And I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was just like, leave me alone. I want to just be alone. And I just remember feeling utterly hopeless. Like, there was no way I could possibly go back. There was no more quarters. There was nothing for me to do to get this money back. It was just sitting there in that slot machine for eight-year-olds. And I know that we're going to look at Genesis 12 today and look at Abraham and this promise, and we're going to get there. But the story behind the story of Abraham really starts in Genesis chapter 3. And so if you want to, if you have your Bible, flip over to Genesis chapter 3 with me and just keep your finger there for a moment. Because I would argue that there's never been a moment in the history of the world that has seemed as utterly hopeless as maybe the minutes and hours that passed between verse 7 and verse 14. You think about what just happened. This is right after the fall. Adam and Eve have sinned. And they know the consequences of sin. It's death. It's separation from God. They had sinned. They had lost everything. And they were ashamed, like I was. They were hopeless, but they were much worse off than me. Uh, They could not repair what had just happened. They went from having everything to having nothing. And the thing is, we don't get to this situation very often. To a point where we've screwed up so bad that there's nothing that can happen, that not even time could heal this wound. Adam and Eve truly are utterly hopeless, and they don't know how to get out of what they've messed up, and they've messed up bad because they have lost God, they have lost life, and there's no way of getting back. They drop their last quarter and have nothing, and this is where it gets good, though, verse 15, because that's where God steps back in the picture as far as Adam and Eve are concerned. He starts talking to the serpent, and all of a sudden they start hearing themselves when God's talking to the serpent. And this is also where the story of Abraham starts to gain traction. The story of Abraham has its roots right here. So let's look at Genesis three fifteen for just one moment. We had lost it all. We were without hope. And they, I say we because Adam and Eve are representing us. But imagine Adam and Eve, after they have sinned, they know what they've done. They are literally hiding from God, and God calls them out. And can you imagine how scary a moment that might be to know what you've just done, and now God is about to talk to you? You have no idea what is about to be said. I know that you were terrified as a kid when your mom said, just wait till your dad gets home and you sat trembling, waiting for your dad to get home, hoping that this would just get over with. Has they just defended a holy God, and they've blown it? These are very scary moments, and these are some of the first lines God mentions after the fall. And speaking of getting in trouble, as a kid, I got in my fair share. Some of you don't find that hard to believe at all if you know me, but... If you and, your, like, a buddy got in trouble, and you were sitting there waiting to get in trouble, and then all of a sudden, like, your dad lays into the other guy, you're like, oh, good, not me. <laughs> well, that kind of happens right here, because God lays into the serpent. But then, like I said earlier, then they start to hear their name dropped in there. And what we see here in Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy of the Bible, And God is the first prophet. And he is speaking in earshot of Adam and Eve and also to the serpent. And this prophecy holds the good news Adam and Eve have been waiting for. It's the first time they probably think, oh, wait a second. There is some hope. And you would have to be paying attention to see it, perhaps. And maybe that's why we miss this sometimes. But let's look at 315. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman... Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Seems like a very innocent passage. And how is this good news? Talking about enmity and everything else. Because enmity really is the center focus of this passage. What God says is, I'll do you a favor. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. if, If Adam and Eve are hearing this, between you guys and the serpent. Eve, between you and the serpent. Now, I don't know, we don't use the word enmity very often, and some of you may not even, you kind of understand what that means, but you don't really understand it. Well, it's not even a word the Bible uses very often. In fact, I think it's only used five times in all of Scripture. It's all in the Old Testament. And if you start to go to Ezekiel and Numbers and some of these places, you start to see the magnitude of this word. Enmity is an extreme hatred. Like, the words that go along with it are murder, bloodshed, death. And the association of those words gives the idea of how hostile this is. So if you're going to think about the kind of relationship God is saying to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, here's your relationship. The good news for Adam and Eve is they're on God's side of this, and the serpent is on the other. But he says, I'll put enmity between you two. It's kind of like if this was a family feud, and you saw that person walking across the street, it isn't like you yell at them. It's like you hit the accelerator kind of hatred, okay? Okay. And you run them down. And then you back up. And then you run them down again. It is an extreme hatred, extreme enmity. This, this relationship is extremely hostile. And it's the, it's the gap that's between God and Satan. It's that hostile. But God is relating to Adam and Eve on their behalf, especially to Eve, because it says between you, Satan, and the woman. But it doesn't stop there. If you go to the second line of 15... It says, and between your offspring and her offspring, this enmity, this battle, so to speak, between the serpent and the woman is passed down through their heritage, through their offspring, through their seed is literally what it's saying here. And the war goes on, and it doesn't stop. The spiritual battle that's taking place, I want you to understand it's a spiritual battle. It's not a physical one. It's not literally between all the kids that Eve has and the kids that Satan has. One, Satan can't have kids. And two, we know it's not just the thing that's going on with Eve because we look at Cain and Abel, her offspring, one was evil, one was good. So it's the spiritual offspring. Those who are the spiritual offspring of the woman, which is in this situation representing God's side, and then of the serpent. And so the war is between serpent and his seed the evil and the woman her seed which is on god's side the kingdom of god versus the kingdom of the ruler of the world now if you pay careful attention this is the story that's just repeated over and over and over in all of the bible it's just got different characters in different situations but it's the one that's repeating all the time And it goes all the way right through the Bible to the end of time. Revelation chapter 12, it literally says that the serpent will go out in war against the seed of the woman. It's like, at the very end, this is still going to be going on. And it's because this is a relationship God has established. And if you haven't noticed yet, I want you to take a step back for a second and realize what God is doing right now. He is relaying the groundwork for history. Because God had set up a world that was made to go one direction and they were to relate to God this way. And we were not to take through fruit of this tree and everything was going to be great. But now the rules have to be changed. He has to lay the ground rules or what we call the playing field of life. He, you have to know who the enemy is. You have to know what's going on around you. And that's what he does in the first part of 15. But then you get a turning point, a big turning point in verse 15 and it's The last part is this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I read this passage maybe 50 times in my life before I noticed this. But you notice the order that God is always talking. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. God is always addressing Satan first. He's always addressing Satan first, then Satan's offspring. And then all of a sudden, God just in the middle of all that switches and says, he. First of all, who is he? And it's not Satan because he he refers to him again as you shall bruise his heel. So Satan is going to bruise whoever he is. He's going to bruise his heel. But all of a sudden, the he is the most preeminent, prominent factor in this whole verse, whoever he is, because it says that he shall bruise your head. Or the better translation probably is that I prefer is crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. What you see here is this This started with the woman and the serpent, and then their offspring. But it's all building towards a climactic point, a climactic battle, like a showdown between whoever he is and the serpent. And the battle is is a fight. It's probably the kind of fight I would get in. As in, there would only be like two hits. I hit someone, they hit me, and it's over kind of a fight. Right here, we see that this is a fight between Satan and this man, and it just two strikes. Satan strikes the man's heel. Does anyone want to take a guess? And this is for you guys to respond to, who's he? Jesus. That's, that's the best Sunday school answer of all time, right? And it's right most of the time. But, yeah, Satan strikes Jesus' heel. But I don't know. I think of, like, the most terrible heel strike of all time. I can think of maybe, like, Babe Ruth grabbing a baseball bat and just walking up to you crow hopping and just jacking you right in the ankle. And that would hurt so bad. And you would want to die. But you know what? You may walk with a limp for the rest of your life, but you will not die. When it says that Jesus will crush his head, that is a fatal blow. It has been pin- and to this point. And we see that it says, Satan will strike Jesus. He will put him on the cross and crucify him. But Jesus will crush his head when he rises again from the dead. This is the story of Scripture. It's all laid out right here. The fact, what we're going to look at today is just the unfolding of how do we get there. We see this, it's seed of the woman, but this is just seed theology. This is just a little seed put down in Scripture for us. And we say, we know what it's going to look like in the end, but how do we get there? That is a mystery. And, well, as you turn the pages of your Bible, you're turning the pages of God's plan of redemption. As we look at the rest of Genesis in here and the rest of Scripture, it's just an unfolding of Genesis 3.15 and this redemptive history that God has planned out. He gave it generally in Genesis 3.15, but he gives it with perfect detail um, as we go through Scripture. So we fast forward to Genesis 12. We have all these events. You have the fall. You have the world going evil, basically. God looks and everyone's heart is inclined to evil. And then he preserves a faithful line in Noah. And he kind of starts over. And then Noah's given a similar like mandate. Go, be fruitful and multiply. He'll be scattered throughout the earth. Well, then we get to the Tower of Babel. And they're trying to make themselves great. Trying to make their name great. Make themselves into a great nation. And we know that God scatters them, confuses their language. And that's Genesis 3 through 11. And what we see now, that's the pieces of the puzzle we know. And now God is unveiling the next little piece. And this is the plan of redemption that we came to in Genesis chapter 12. So now the focus shifts to Abraham. And Abraham is a monster figure in the Old Testament. And there's a thousand things we can talk about Abraham. We're just going to look at one little aspect of Abraham's story today, just one side of it, and it'll be very quick because we've done everything, the groundwork for it so far. But from the very beginning, God's been preserving creation and a people for himself, even when they've screwed up. We saw it start there, and we've seen it throughout Genesis, and he's always had a universal concern. God loves the world. You can read John 3.16 and know that, but we see it in Genesis as well. And so It may or may not make sense that God has had all these missional efforts that he's taking, and he just brings them all and focuses them onto one man. He just stops what he was doing all over the place and just says, you know, one person. Now, that, that may seem like God is playing favorites, as in God is saying, forget the rest of the world. I'll just focus on this one guy. I don't care about the other people. I'll just focus on this one guy. Uh, that might seem what it's like on the surface, but it's not the reality. You got, Remember what the world's like at this time. People are everywhere. They've been scattered. You don't even know where all people are. And they all speak different languages. You can't even communicate. By the way, there's no, like, translators probably by this point. They don't know how to interpret each other. And so what is God going to do? He's not turning his back on creation, rather what he's done here in Abraham is send a missionary to the world. And, and, I, and when I think about this, we talk about Abraham a lot, but thinking of Abraham as a missionary to the world or his family, that's crazy talk if you know who Abraham is. Because this is a very much a story just like God, because God does stuff like this. Abraham is not the kind of person we would all elect as a missionary. Are you kidding me? This is a guy who's probably worshiping idols at the moment, came from a family of idol worshipers. And you know what? He is a screw-up. He, he messes up a lot. And he's not a, a beautiful-looking man or a natural-born leader. But here's what Abraham had, and this is what qualified him. He believed God. He believed him. And that is what was and when you look at Romans chapter 4 it's what was credited him righteousness it was his faith it's what made him a friend of God that's what makes us a friend of God and this message of faith is the missionary message that Abraham's going to carry with him and take down through his offspring and Romans chapter 4 also makes very clear that the children of Abraham are those people who believe in God by faith and really are looking to that Messiah laid out in Genesis 3.15 by faith. So God's not drawing back. He's not just, when he focuses on Abraham, he's not drawing back from the rest of creation. He's strategically moving forward. And how do I know that? Well, it's very simple, and this will be the last thing we talk about. And if you look at Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 2. Says, and I will make you a great nation. That's a great promise for Abraham. And I will bless you. That's a great promise for Abraham. And I will make you your name great. That's a great promise for Abraham. It is not about Abraham. Look at the next two words. So that. So that you will be a blessing. That blessing. Look at the end of verse 3 for all the families of the earth every tongue tribe and nation it's not just abraham or just his family or just israel it's the entire world and that's god's missionary starting right here he is a missionary his family will be missionaries and abraham is god's means to reaching the world that's what we need to see i don't know if you i've never really even thought about it that, that way before i started preparing for this lesson And this is just the beginning stage. We talked about from beginning to end, Genesis 3.15. This is just the seed. Abraham is just the seed. What goes on from generation to generation through the line of Abraham is what you get all the way till the line of Abraham hits its ultimate fulfillment when faith is realized, when the ultimate missionary comes in Jesus himself. And this is God's plan. He made it this way. And we get to look at it. And you know what? It doesn't just stop with Jesus. The plan of redemption is still going on. I don't know if you realize that. I mean, it is because we're here. If you're a believer and you're here, it's because it, it got to you. Now, let me just say this. The plan of redemption has grown and taken on different faces throughout the age. But the fact remains that salvation has always been by faith in the Messiah That's promised in Genesis 3.15. We look back at it. We look back at Jesus by faith. We look back to what Jesus did. And we believe in Christ by faith. The Old Testament people, Abraham, they were looking at the same Jesus from a different timeline. From the time looking forward to the Christ. We look back, they look forward. But it's the same faith in the God that was promising a Messiah right there in Genesis chapter 3. So it really boils down to, there's only two people, and two types of people in the world. There's really just two types of people in this room. There's people who are stuck at Genesis 3.14, and there's people who have, have taken hold of Genesis 3.15. It's those who are sitting there in the hopelessness of Genesis 3.14, just like I was sitting there not, miserable beyond the world because I lost every quarter I ever owned and could do nothing to change it. And then there's those who have realized, I have a father who has a cattle on a thousand hill. What the heck's a quarter? Now, if if you find yourself Genesis 3.14, it does not have to be that way. That's the good news. It doesn't have to be that way. God provided a Savior, and you... I don't know if you really... You know why God provided a Savior? Because we can't save ourselves. <laughs> I mean, it seems so simple. We need a Savior. We don't need a helper. And there's no amount of good works that we can do, no, not a number of tips of the cap to God as we go through life that's going to make us right with him. He says, it's just Jesus. And he, he makes that pretty clear. Jesus does. He's when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. And it's not no one comes to Father except through me and a bunch of good stuff. And looking right, it's just through me. And then God says, "I'll make you right." Now the other people in here are the people that share that hope of Abraham. And the fact is is that story still continues. generation to generation, it continues even right now. The message of hope, the gospel, is still passed on from generation to generation. And we're still fighting an enemy, and the stakes are still high. It's the souls of men and women. And if you know this great gift of salvation, it's probably because someone from the time of Abraham through the dark times, the 400 years before Jesus came through the apostles, has taken the baton of the gospel and placed it in your hand. And as you look at it, you're like, that is a battered, blood-stayed baton. Because people have made sure that it's gone from generation to generation as a missionary. Abraham was credited his faith. He did things that the world thought stupid. Believers before us have done things that look stupid as missionaries. Abraham was a missionary. And you know what? We're missionaries to the world, too. And as far as we go, if we are of this hope, we're also missionaries of that hope. So just remember, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. that was us. And uh, let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Lord, I thank you that you have loved us and that even when we were unlovely and had no hope, you came and provided hope. You gave us a, a Savior. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you came to erase our our record, to erase the curse of sin and make us your own. And God, we worship you because we could not have done that ourselves. And Lord, the, even that you... You keep us in your righteous right hand even right now. Help us to, if we have not come to you by faith to do so, and if we have, to help other people, just a center pointing another center to where the bread is to show them where hope is found. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.